All right, let's get to work. Oh, hey, Gigi. It's good to be with you today. Very excited to open God's word, and we trust that it's actually going to do something in our souls as we apply it to our lives. And so would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and a uh, slight disclaimer, I'm feeling sick today, so if I stay seated, uh, that would take an act of God, but we'll, uh, we'll see. But I may just talk a little bit slower than normal, and some of you just said amen. So, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, I need you guys to know that the world outside these doors isn't too interested in your Christian religion or the way that we decorate our worship to our deity. The world wants to find a cheap fix, a numbing of our decaying, a get-rich-quick scheme that will make everything better in a blink of an eye. And the world doesn't really care what is true anymore. They care what works. That's why we often will accept testimonies of celebrities that testify to some product making them who they are, when at the end of the day, what really has made the people who they are are genes, being in the right place, possibly some luck, and more possibly God's intervention. Here's the good news about our faith. As long as it is grounded in Jesus, it not only works, but it's true. The thing is that often when we talk about our faith, we don't really define what that looks like. We kind of have a Christianized version of what our faith is supposed to look like, which tends to mean you come into church, you take notes, you say amen when I say something that's tweetable, you sing some songs, raise your hands if, if other people are, you leave this place and you tend to forget a lot of what you've heard. And that's a Christianized version of Christianity. And yet when we read the Bible, we see men and women that were willing to give up their lives for the cause of Christ because Jesus is worth it. So here's this good news about our faith. Not only does it work, but it's true. And when I say that it works and it's true, we have to understand that our Christian life is not about making us healthy, wealthy, and more comfortable, but it's to live a life devoted to Jesus and all that we do. And if led by the Spirit of God, our faith will always work. But here's the thing. As we've been going through this book of the Bible, the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters of the book has been talking a ton about who we are. It's about the doctrine. It's about who we are. But now we're talking about what we do. And if you don't know who we are and you just try to do, you can do it without the right motivation because you cannot read this without first knowing what we believe because doing without doctrine is just duty. He said duty. Rather than diligent submission. And so too often in the church, we do things because we feel we just have to, as opposed to get to because we have trusted Jesus with our lives. And last week in chapter 4, we talked about this idea of unity that Paul wants believers, men and women, God personally wants believers, his children, to actually get along and care for one another. And that unity is always found wrapped up in truth, not just based on what we want, not just based on not having conflict. But starting in verse 7, Paul moves from unity to diversity. So real quick, would you look around this room? Y'all don't look alike. Praise Jesus for that. And it is through this diversity that God shows off that the church of Jesus Christ is not a cult. It's not a club or a gathering without purpose. But it is through this diverse body of believers all across the world that God is redeeming and conforming into his image. Every skin color, every dialect, every background, and needless to say, every political affiliation, God is redeeming. And within this melting pot of God's church, there's a lot of different gifts that are given to the church. 
and they were given by God to the people in his church. So we're going to start in verse 7 of Ephesians, and the first few verses, there's some theological stuff that we have to work through, but it's all about the grace that God's given us. So let's look at this, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given, as Christ apportioned it. Grace, this word in Greek is charis, and this is Evangeline, my third daughter's middle name. This is the word that we get charisma from, or even charismatic. And charis, or charismatic, means gifts. So when we say the charismatic gifts, what we're saying are the gift gifts. (laughs) But for a second, I want you to, to remove all the things you think you understand about gifts. I don't want you to come in here just going, well, I heard this once, or I think it's this. I want you to take that away because the gift that God gave us was grace. And that grace that he gave us was in himself. God gave us himself. He apportioned it, and it is measured through what Christ chooses to give us. Each follower of Jesus, each Christian has been given a gift. He has been given grace. She has been given grace. This gift is not something that you've earned, but it's something that God gave you that you didn't deserve. Verse 8, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Paul's quoting from the Psalms, the, these, these books that were written in the Hebrew Scriptures, Old Testament, Psalm 68, and he kind of changes it a little bit. But then he goes on in verse 9, he says, what does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And some of you were like, okay, pastor, uh, what? Teach that to me. What what does that mean? And this specific passage, and this is one of the best things about being a lead pastor, is I can teach what the Bible says and I don't have to ask anyone's permission. And so here's the thing. This passage is not agreed upon by godly people. It's just not. There are different theologians who have written, you know, have written books And two different theologians that I may appreciate tend to not see the same view on this. So I'm going to teach you all the different options and tell you what I think it might be. But at the end of the day, we need to understand all three of these things. So this specifically, it talks about him ascending and descending. And a lot of us would just assume that this is talking about Jesus' descent into what is known as Hades or Sheol or Abraham's bosom. And that can be interpreted specifically because it talks about the lower earthly regions, which when Jesus hung on the cross, he had a nail put in this wrist. He had a nail put in this wrist. He had a nail put through his ankles. And when he hung on the cross after being beaten, flogged, spit on, and abused, as he hung there, he was going to die for humankind's sin, past, present, future. And while he hung on the cross, he said, Father, please forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And when he eventually breathed his last breath, right before that he said, it is finished. Which in the world's eyes, him dying was defeating a blasphemer. But it was in that moment where God in the flesh gave up his spirit. See, no one killed Jesus, church. Jesus laid down his life, and as a teacher and as a pastor, you need to hear that from me. No one killed Jesus. Your sin's not stronger than my God. He decided to lay down his life. If you're in your Bible and you can get there quickly, you go to the left, just a few books, John chapter 10. You can if you want, otherwise it'll be on the screen. John chapter 10, Jesus is speaking and he says in verse 17, 
The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. This is a God who has authority even over life and death. And after Jesus gave up his life, after his body was taken off of the cross and laid in a borrowed tomb, his spirit descended into the depths of Hades, which before the captives were set free was a place that some were bound, some spirits were bound, and some were loose, if you will. But those who were loose were those who had put their faith in the promises of God up until that point. It's a term known as progressive revelation. The Bible goes, does not only, doesn't really go into great detail about all of this, but this is what often gets mistaken for Jesus descending into hell. And here's my problem, which is Jesus descending into hell, because Jesus never stopped being God. And by definition, hell is without God. And so he descended into Hades. He descended into Abraham's bosom or into Sheol, which was this place which many in the Catholic faith kind of get their idea of purgatory from. That, that you would be stuck here until the final judgment. But it wasn't until Jesus went into the depths and released those who were loose, those who had trusted in God's, uh, in God's promises that he rescued them. In 1 Peter, Peter's speaking to the church, and he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So that's one interpretation, that that's what Jesus did, that he descended into this place. But others see this interpretation as the incarnation of Christ, that Jesus, who has always been, you guys get that, right? Like he didn't just start to exist when he was born to Mary. He's always been. When God created the heavens and the earth, Jesus wasn't sitting on the sidelines. Jesus was there doing some heavy lifting. And Jesus has always been. But when he came to earth, when God decided to become man and come to earth, he took on flesh. He was born of a virgin, and that virgin's name was Mary. Jesus grew up as we did. Jesus has been tempted as we have been. And even though he lived 33 years on this planet before dying on the cross, he was resurrected, he ascended to heaven, and Jesus has always been and he will always be. And so many see it as the incarnation of Christ. Philippians 2, we talked about this last week. In Philippians 2, Paul's writing to the church in Philippi and he says, Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage? Rather... He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, and that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You're either going to bow or you're going to bow. And it was this incarnation, God becoming man, dwelling among us, that the ultimate victory was had through Jesus' perfect life lived, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. So maybe it's him descending into the depths of the earth to set the captives free. Maybe it's Jesus coming and living among us, God taking on flesh. But here's the one I think it's talking about contextually. 
Christ, after he lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died the death we deserve to die, physically rose from the dead, ascended on high, he spent his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. You know that the Holy Spirit makes followers of Jesus holy, hence the name? And the Spirit descended after Jesus' resurrection because Jesus had defeated death and what sin had a hold of. But it was the Holy Spirit that was given to us as our seal for our salvation, the sanctifier for our continued maturity, and the gift to be used for the glory of God through God's church. I think it's that one. We can debate. I'm, I don't care. I think it's that one. But it doesn't, it, really what it's saying is that he did ascend, he did descend. But the reason I think it's that one is because he's about to talk about the gift that he gave to the church. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 And he gave, so much power and he gave. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Christ himself gave, or Christ gave himself through is another interpretation. Both are true. But I want you to know that God gave these specific offices of people who were gifted to be responsible for shepherding and leading and proclaiming the truths of God through his church and through the working of his spirit. And it was this gift to the church that would equip us as the saints to be included in the work that Christ had for us to do. See, grace, and if you're taking notes, there is a test at the end, so I'd recommend you do. Grace has always been about God giving the gift of himself. That's what grace is. It's the gift of God giving of himself. See, grace isn't something you earned. It isn't something that you manufactured like a 16-year-old driving a Tesla. You did not earn it. He gave. And there is so much that we can get from those two words because when we understand the gospel, we understand that he gave. That the gospel was that he gave us what we did not deserve. And these offices are gifts of God that were given to the church through himself to equip, to be responsible for, to train people to grow into the likeness of Jesus. So you want to know what the vision of Church of the Valley is? To grow into the likeness of Jesus. Simply. But how do you do that? We'll get to that. But that's what we focus on. We want to see people mature, not just physically, but spiritually, into the likeness of Jesus. So there are these five different offices, and it started with the apostles, and as we started this book, in the first sermon, Mike Miller preached, and he talked about the apostles being the sent ones. These were men who saw Jesus alive after he died, and Jesus handpicked, and he appointed them to go preach, to go plant churches. They wrote doctrine that you now study in the New Testament. They shepherded and oversaw the beginnings of the early church, the ecclesia, not the building, but the people. In the movement of Jesus Christ's people. And then he gave first of those apostles. Then he gave the prophets, the people who would speak truth. They would speak truth on God's behalf and would not just tell the future, but they would point people towards repentance. They would point them towards the coming judgment. They would point them towards how salvation could be found in Jesus. Apostles and prophets were those God used to speak through and who God used to speak his very words and what ended up in scripture so even though today and i I may step on some toes theologically right now but but eh, okay even though people have the example today of being apostolic being church planners caring about god's church not just in one one gathering but all around the area even though there are some people that are quite 
prophetic. These offices no longer exist biblically. These offices, apostle and prophet, no longer exist. There are people that are apostolic. There are people that are prophetic. But there are no longer apostles. So if you call yourself an apostle, you're outside of Scripture. Because if they were apostles, if they were prophets, we'd have to write down what they say, and that would mean Scripture wasn't finished. And yet, we believe that Scripture is canonized. It is closed. We have what we need to know about Jesus, and it was written by apostles and prophets that spoke the very words of God, and we wrote them down, and now we have them. So then, he gives the apostles and the prophets closed offices, but now we have some offices that are still open. He gave the evangelists. And the evangelists, in my mind, are the most misunderstood office that Christ ever gave, and probably mostly because I am one. Evangelists would proclaim the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ did for you what you could not do for yourself. They did not and never should proclaim moral modification. An evangelist never should get up and tell you how to be a better you. He should always point you to Jesus Christ. And God wants, and, and he should never preach a prosperity gospel, that God wants to give you your best life now, because if you get your best life now, that means you're probably going to hell. And they don't preach that God wants to give you all that your heart desires, lest you become a spoiled brat. They do not proclaim that following Jesus is easy, because that would war against the understanding of what the Bible actually says, because you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him, and that's not easy. Evangelists proclaim the truth that if you would humble yourself, that you would yield your life to Jesus, the crucified and resurrected king, he will lead you, he will mature you, and here's the part we're afraid of, he will change you. Evangelists are not people who just come into a church, blow in, blow up, blow out with their one message, but like a teacher in the church, they teach and empower the believer to grow in the Lord. The only difference is that evangelists tend to go into places where Jesus is unknown and make him known. And then you have the pastors, or some translations call the shepherds. The office in which shepherds uh, or pastors would shepherd a flock of people. They care for them. They lead them. They inform them. They, they, they care about their needs. And sheep need guidance. Have you ever seen a sheep? They stupid. Sheep need guidance and often make mistakes, and a shepherd's job is to care for and get the prickles out of their fur. Pastors care for those that are inside of God's church. Then there's teachers. This is the last office in which there is a lot of debate. Teachers, uh, this idea of teachers, somewhat believe that it's not pastors and teachers, it's pastor teachers, or teaching pastors is just one office. I'm not convinced of that, so I'm going to teach them as separate, but that doesn't mean it's not true. But I think it's different. And I would contend that all pastors can teach, but not all teachers can pastor. You know what I mean? And the teacher's office represents one who helps guide the body of believers towards maturity through the teaching of the word of God and explaining and describing the very words of God so their hearers can understand and be equipped as followers of Jesus towards maturity. If you're taking notes, really your notes should be towards maturity. That's what we're here for, towards maturity. And we're going to see over these next three verses few verses how important this is and how this is the plan of God to help us grow more into his likeness. Verse 12. So he gave these offices to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. He gave 
these offices, not so the office would do the work of the ministry, but so the office would actually equip others to do the work of the ministry. I love this verse because this means I get to relax sometimes. <laughs> and this is not about just people that, well, let me say it this way. Our faith is not for our entertainment. You guys get that? Like the whole idea of coming to church is not to entertain you. It's not for you to just watch someone else, some professional, do the work of the ministry. The work of the church is to help equip you towards maturity, and we tend to mature by doing things. And the goal of Jesus Christ's church is not to entertain or to even allow you to audit someone else's quiet time during the week. Because honestly, the pastor's job is to replicate. It's to equip and replicate and reproduce disciples of Jesus. And because replication and reproduction and spiritual growth are key, we can't just do all the work ourselves. That's not biblical for a pastor to do. We, those who are called to be in the ministry to lead the church, we are called to actually help people mature. And if we're honest with ourselves, have we helped other people mature? Let me ask it this way. Let me, let me make it hurt a little more. Have you replicated yourself as you've become a follower of Jesus? You don't have to answer that. Maybe later. But have you replicated yourself? But here's the thing. If you sit here and you feel guilty because you go, no, I haven't, I haven't made a disciple. I haven't replicated myself. I actually don't blame you. I blame us. I blame the pastors. I blame the professional Christians. A pastor's job has always been to equip, empower you to do the ministry. But generally, pastors don't want to do that because we want to be very busy, but we're not productive. Ooh. But I understand why. You ever, if you're a, a parent, have you ever tried to teach your kids how to do chores? It's exhausting because they suck at it. <laughs> but equipping and empowering is the point. It's way harder. It's e easier for us pastors to just do the work ourselves. But that is not replicating. That is not being obedient to what the text says. So all of these offices are specifically created in order to equip the saints, those of you who have trusted Jesus, to equip the saints to empower you, to train you, to continually grow, to be fully mature one day, to be built up and to grow up into an army of disciples that make Jesus known. I think ever since Jesus told us to make disciples, those of us who would like to be a teacher who then invests in other people to teach them how to teach, I think ever, ever since Jesus said, go and make disciples, Satan's been really happy because for hundreds of years, especially right before the Reformation, and for the past couple hundred years, I think we focus more on making, replicating church services rather than disciples. Huh. And I would also say that the devil is probably actually quite happy with you worshiping God for an hour and a half once a week. And he pretends to have you the rest of the week. He probably thinks, yeah, go sing love songs to Jesus. Listen to someone lecture about their quiet time and pontificate. While you take notes, and you allow those notes to stay in your Bible, which stays in the backseat of your car throughout the rest of the week until you come back next Sunday. Hmm. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, I don't remember them. I was born in 80, just, you know, you guys can do the math. But back in the 70s and early 80s, there was an era that started, and it was called the Come and See Era, which was about getting people into a room to be entertained. And it wasn't bad. They wanted people to come into the room so they could hear the gospel. 
that wasn't bad. It was just incomplete. And unfortunately, we stopped replicating people who follow Jesus and started replicating the come and see services. You know, there's nowhere in the Bible it says go build a big building. Gather a lot of people. In fact, Jesus constantly thinned the crowds, didn't he? Come follow me. You'll have to bite me and drink my blood. What? Right? Like people just... Bible never says you better have programs in place to keep people comfortable and keep them coming. You know, I don't preach to shareholders. When people ask me about the church and they ask me how I'm doing, we talk about how the church, one of the things I get to say is I don't preach to shareholders. You know what that means? That if the Bible offends you, I'm not going to lose sleep over that. There's no one here that's paying my salary. God is the one who has all the money on all the hills and has all the cattle and has all that. And so I don't have to preach to shareholders, but a lot of times in the church we do. See, my main task is to equip you to grow more into the likeness of Jesus. So if you, you can come and check out Church of the Valley, you can be a part of Church of the Valley, you can be a member of Church of the Valley. But no, the point is to help you grow more into the likeness of Jesus. And guess what? That's not going to be easy. <sighs> Often in the church we celebrate the wrong things. We get really excited about stuff that has no spiritual implications at all. And one of the things, especially coming to this church and having two churches come together and having new people uh, join or at least come and attend, this is a question I get asked all the time by other pastors. How many in your church? My response is always, how many what? Disciples? Attenders? Shareholders, what do you mean? See, the pastor in the church will not be held responsible for how many, but what kind. And if we are sheep, we are growing, and we are being led. Christendom, this Christianized kind of nation, I wouldn't say we're very Christian, but I would say that we have Christian ideals. Christendom is a very funny thing, because for some reason we've started to run churches as an organization rather than an organism. And we think whoever has the most people inside the building wins. That's the spiritual equivalent of whoever has the most toys at the end of your life wins. But they all burn and there's no U-Haul behind a bus or a hearse. And I think it's hilarious. I'd have a bus for some reason. I think it's hilarious that when a church becomes a mega church, they become the experts for everything. One pastor, a guy that I adore in Texas, he said, people call me to ask what kind of coffee we serve. Because they think that will help people grow in the likeness of Jesus. And many churches, if we're honest, are more focused on ABCs of Christianity, attendance, buildings, and cash, than life change. We can't be about that. I'm not slamming anyone else. I may have a different task. They may have a different task. But I refuse to let us focus on those things. we got to focus on Jesus and allowing him to grow us. Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers in the 19th, uh, 19th century, would preach to 20,000 people. He had a mega church. He had no microphones. Just remember that, Aaron. He had no microphones. And one time, someone in the church came up to him. Or sorry, one time a pastor came up to him and said, I have a complaint. My congregation, he was talking about himself, not Spurgeon. My congregation is too small. Spurgeon's response was, well, perhaps they're as large as you'd like to give an account for on the day of judgment. It's not about how many, it's about what kind. 
It starts with us pastors. We must pour out our lives. Those of us who are leaders, those of us who are shepherds, small group leaders, those of us who are investing in other people, we must pour out our lives. You know why? Because zero times anything is always zero. Some of you will get that when you leave. (laughs) And if our pastors are not replicating themselves, if our leaders are not replicating themselves, I don't care if you have the title of pastor and you're receiving a housing allowance. If you are not replicating people, you are not a pastor biblically. We must equip. We must empower. We must encourage. We must replicate ourselves. See, technically, my job is to work myself out of a job. But most of us don't want to do that because either we don't know that that's technically the goal or we're too afraid that people, that if we equip someone else to do our job, we won't have anything to do. But who does that make it about, you or God? The call to these offices are not a call to a profession. They are a call to a passion. You hear me? The goal is not, oh, one day if I study the Bible enough and I go to school and I do this, then I can be a, no, no, no. A lot of you are shepherds right now. But shepherd people, replicate yourself. When you go into the military, they don't lecture you about warfare. They equip you to go to war. And church, there is a spiritual war that is at hand. If you like it or not, if you've said yes to Jesus, you're in this war. And the church is where you get the tools to fight this war. For the glory of God's name. Next verse. Verse 13a that we are being built up until we all attain to the unity of the faith. We are being built up into the unity of the faith, into unification, where we all believe and trust the same God, not a placebo version, not a God of our own desires, but the Jesus of the Bible. And we trust Jesus who died for our sins and made a way that we could be made right. He rose from the dead. That's the one we trust. That's what we're unified in, not in what type of worship style we like. Ooh. And unity in God's church is something I always believe God has been ferocious about. You've heard me say this before. Least favorite sound on earth, my kids fighting. My, least, my favorite sound on earth, my kids loving one another. And our relationship with God is personal. But in order to be his disciple, you must love one another. So turn to the person next to you and say, I love you. No, you don't have to do that. I'm just kidding. I love you. But it is personal. Our relationship with God is personal. But following him and being sanctified is a team sport. We need the people next to us. That's why we attempt to make the church smaller by offering community groups. In November, towards the end of the month, we're going to discontinue the current small groups. And you guys will have a discussion. Maybe you want to keep them going. But in December, we're going to focus on a teaching series and making much of Jesus and Christmas time and all of that. But... In January, we're going to start something else that takes it from just being rows and makes it more circles because the church has to get smaller in order for us to rub off on one another. And I preach every week trying to get some of you not to come back, and you're not listening. (laughs) But I'll give you a clue to why we need the church to be smaller and be in circles and not in rows. You want to know why? Anyone want to give an account this week of the lust that they've had? Anyone want to get up and share about how you talked behind a brother or sister in the faith back this week? Probably not. And if you do, you're weird. But in a small group, maybe you have a relationship with your leader. Maybe you have a relationship with someone else in that group, and you can go to them, and you can pray, and you can confess, and you can have someone love you towards grace. 
you can't engage in community with one another, we can't equip you. So write that down. If you cannot engage in community, we can't equip you because you must rub off on one another because preaching and teaching will only inspire and inform. That's all it'll do. But one-on-one and in small groups, that's where equipping and replication truly take place because we rub off on one another. And unity is part of the maturing process. We must be unified amongst the truth of God. So next, after unification, he's building us up into uh, chapter 4, verse 13b, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. The knowledge to know. Knowledge is information experience. The knowledge of the Son of God to know Jesus, not know a lot about him, but to know him personally. I meet with a lot of people, and I committed that when I came to this church, I was going to continue to meet with the guys that I was discipling and meet with every week or every other week. But one of the things that I have to even do more of now is make sure I get with people more mature than me. Because I'm responsible for a lot of people, and I need people to call me out on stuff. And so I sit down. There's one guy. He was here for my installation. He, uh, there's many guys I meet with, but Steve is a good friend, and Steve and I will sit down. And Steve's one of those guys, when you hang out with him, this is theologically incorrect, so I walked away from the pulpit, but uh, he just oozes the Holy Spirit. You know what I mean? Like you hang out with him and you're like, Jesus, right? Like you're just excited. And Steve and I were meeting, we're having bagels at a, at a bagel shop in Morgan Hill a while back. And he was a good friend. He said this to me. He said, how are your dialogues with Jesus? <sighs> I got to be honest, at that time, and, and it's better now, but it's not always great. At that time, all the study I was doing was to teach people. All the time I was spending in prayer was because other people asked me to pray. And I wasn't getting alone with my Lord. And I was so busy writing sermons and doing meetings that I allowed Jesus to be a concept and not a confidant. And so before you come to your pastor to confess, confess to the Lord. Holy Spirit likes meetings a lot more than I do. So church, we need to be connected to Jesus. You personally and me personally as the shepherd need to be connected to Jesus. And it is through meditation of his word. It is through filling our mind with his word and spending time praying and getting before him that the Lord will not only be more real in our lives, because he's real anyway, but we'll know him better. It's all about knowing Jesus. It's all about knowing that his atonement for your sins, dying for your sins, rising from the dead, is the validation which actually gives us justification. It is through what he's done, not what we do. But generally, you and I, we try to attempt to justify ourselves because grace is too easy. We think it's too easy. We want to earn everything on our own, but he who we sinned against decided to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So we see that Jesus uses the gifts to the church and these offices of gifted people to equip and build up the body of believers towards unification. And now we just talked about justification, to know him personally. In verse 13, he continues, see, to mature manhood towards maturity, also known as sanctification, the growth process, spiritual growth, that every believer, if you've submitted to Jesus, goes through. Let me say that again. Every believer who submitted to Jesus goes through the sanctification process. So if you haven't grown, check yourself. But once we submit to Jesus, we are now an infant in the faith. Now, I've had four infants, and when they were infants, there wasn't much they could do. I was like, go get a job. They couldn't do it, right? 
And when we first come to Jesus, we are an infant, and we can't do much, and we're pretty selfish. But once you know, once you meet Jesus, once you know him, Jesus doesn't let you stay where you are. But the reason that these gifts were given to the church was to help mature believers, to mature them towards adulthood. And the problem for many is that growth is intentional. Write that down. Growth is intentional. It's not accidental. And at the ch- in the church of Jesus Christ at large today, we have many elderly infants who met Jesus, said yes to him, and yet they never matured spiritually because they assumed it would just happen without effort. Unfortunately, that's all too common. And that's like, how many of you have been to Disneyland? Okay, I, I haven't been there since Tuesday, so I know. Rough net for Jesus. It was 105, so boo-hoo. All right, so too many of us say yes to Jesus, but we never actually enjoy the growth process. And here's what I mean by this. This is like you've never been to Disneyland. You're super excited about it. You want to go to Disneyland. You go online. You find the best deal. By the way, it's AAA. You find the best deal for Disneyland passes, and you get the Disneyland tickets, and you're excited about it. You go, and you look for something that you could, uh, some way to get there. You find a Southwest flight at $49 each way, and you're like, yes! And so now you have the ticket. Now you have the flight. You fly down to JFK. You rent a car, probably budget. You get that car. Then you drive to the place. You pay $20 for stupid parking, and now you've pulled in, and then you get out, you're so excited, but then you realize there's a tram, and you get on the tram, and now you're on the tram, and they're like, welcome to Disneyland, and they speak in tongues, and then all of this stuff happens, <laughs> and then you, you get off of the tram, and, and you walk up, and they check your stuff to make sure you don't have bombs, and then you give them the ticket, and then you get to go through the turnstile, and it's like, and as you walk in, you just sit down before you ever walk on the main street where so many of us are in our spiritual journey. I praise God that he'd save us, but he didn't save us so we'd sit right outside the turnstile. He saved us so we would know him and grow more into his likeness. And God rescued you, church. He rescued you, followers of Jesus. But you must be willing to allow him to grow you into his likeness because he will not force it on you. And just like a 40-year-old playing in the kiddie pool, that's super awkward. Do you know that there are men and women in this church that over many years have grown a ton spiritually in this community? But here's the thing. It's not because they did anything. It's because they were willing to trust God. It's not because they saved themselves is what I meant. But it's because they were willing to trust God and then do what the word of God says. Many years ago in a third world country, some scientists believed that they had come up with a solution for how to cure hunger in their country. And they started off with two rabbits. They had these two rabbits. One was male, one was female. And they put them in a pen to keep them enclosed. And they gave them enough food to keep them fed and, and full for a while. They put seeds in this little uh, area, hoping that it would start to spring up different uh, food. And these two Rabbits, as they would eat, would create fertilizer, if you know what I mean. And then the hope was that they would eat of the food. The food would start to grow because of the fertilizer. They would start to get bigger and bigger, and then they would start to reproduce. If you don't know how that works, um, don't Google it. But guess what? 
in theory, they were going to feed and create all these new bunnies that were well-fed, and it was just going to be this, this system that worked within itself. But you know what? It didn't work. You want to know why? Because the scientists who put this into place got impatient. You know what they did? They ate their first two rabbits. Church. We need to equip our people to build them up towards maturity, to allow them to work in their giftings. But unfortunately, we in the church eat our first two rabbits. We get these super plump rabbits. We get these super excitable people that want to serve, and we burn them out. We put them in a ministry job that they're not ready for and not capable of. We keep people busy but not productive. And we often put leaders in place, not because they're ready to lead, but because we are in need as the leadership. That's why my job is not to do everything in the church. It's to oversee the spiritual development of the flock. So there will be times where I say no, but I'm saying no because it's best for you spiritually. There will be times I say, yeah, let's try that because I believe it's best for us spiritually. And often young people, and I'm not looking at you, but I'm looking at you. Often young people want to lead without the experience or maturity because they believe if they start learning, they'll mature. They're not totally wrong, but they're not totally equipped yet either. And I'll tell you this. My first sermon was preached after I had been a Christian for six months. That was way too early. Way too early. And it stunted my spiritual growth because I wasn't ready to handle the truth of God yet. And so before you want to lead... Mature. Allow God to pour into you. Make sure you have someone investing in your life. Make sure you have someone who's measuring how you're doing. All right, I got I to gotta go fast now. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, so the body must be unified. That's unification. That we would know Jesus. That's justification. That we would mature towards adulthood. That's sanctification. And now to the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is glorification. This is what we're working towards. But trust me, you don't want to get there too fast because this is when you're done breathing. We are working towards perfection by pursuing the perfect one. But trust me, you're not going to be perfect in this life until you stand before Jesus. There will come a day at the end of the race, the the reward will be waiting for us. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sorrow. The resurrected body awaits. I can't wait, but I kind of can. And glorification is coming, but don't miss out on what God is currently doing in you now to mature you. Verse 14. Worship team, come on up. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Again, too many of us are in the kiddie pool when there is this amazing amount of knowledge and opportunity to grow more into the likeness of Jesus. So don't miss out. Don't just stand right outside the turnstiles on the way to Main Street. Church, we're here to reproduce, plain and simple. We're here to help people grow into the likeness of Jesus. And most of you understand that babies don't reproduce, right? And so we need to be a people that are willing to allow God to teach us that we would apply it to our lives. Verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. If you are a committed follower of Jesus, we believe that God's word is true and we believe what he says and we don't just believe it intellectually, we believe it practically and experientially. 
please don't let all the Bible that you get every week be from some pastor opening it and pontificating about what they learned. Please open the Bible for yourself. Please study it with somebody else. Please talk with someone else because here's my biggest fear, that you would hear it week after week and it would just harden your heart. And then you would say, well, my faith doesn't work. It sure as heck does, but we have to apply it to our lives. Verse 16, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Paul is always using an example of this body, this organism that works together. Because here's the thing, if you stub your toe, your whole body feels it, doesn't it? Uh-huh. And you say names in a way you shouldn't, like Jesus. But our faith does work. And not only that, it produces work in us, but only if we are willing to trust God at his word. So my prayer for you, Church of the Valley is that you would be willing to mature progressively into the likeness of Jesus. And I promise as your pastor, I will give you opportunities to grow. But they're not going to always be easy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing in this place. Thank you that you love us in spite of us. God, I pray as we have the opportunity to give of an offering, as we have the opportunity to worship you in song, that, Lord, you would get the praise that you're due. So God, thank you that you love us and that you're for us. Thank you that your word never comes back void. Lord, I pray that we would apply the things that we've heard today to our lives and ultimately grow more into your likeness. We love you. In your beautiful name, amen.